You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to, to welcome you to a, uh, the plenary session. My name is uh, Craig Smith, and as the accent probably gives away, I'm from the University of Glasgow. And this plenary, plenary lecture is part of a series of eight lectures that will take place around the world in 2023. And these lectures will be given by the University of Glasgow's Templeton Adam Smith Tercentenary Fellows. The University of Glasgow is Adam Smith's academic home. Smith joined as a student in 1737 and returned to the university, first as Professor of Logic in 1751, and then a year later as Professor of Moral Philosophy, a post he held until he left academic life in 1764. The research that formed the basis of his two great books, The Theory of Moral Sentiments of 1759 and An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, took place during his time at Glasgow. To commemorate Smith's achievements, the University of Glasgow, with the support of the John Templeton Foundation, have launched a project entitled Smith at 300, celebrating Adam Smith as scholar, educator, and citizen. Our aim is to provide the opportunity for scholars, intellectuals, and the global public to connect Smith's thinking and work with 21st century challenges in an engaging and accessible way. Embedded in the work of each of the pillars of Smith at 300 are elements that Smith exemplified himself. The Enlightenment ideals of spreading knowledge through publication, debate, and discussion. Smith believed that such an exchange of ideas would lead to intellectual and material progress. And his own experience of debates in Glasgow, Edinburgh, and London in the 18th century helped confirm that to him. All of this, of course, was confirmed by his commitment to empirical research and clarity in normative philosophy. And we hope to recapture this cosmopolitan intellectualism with our Templeton Adam Smith Tercentenary Fellows. We'll bring Smith into conversation with the big questions of today and explore Smithian ideas from a variety of disciplinary and ideological backgrounds. And this Smithian spirit of inquiry is perfectly illustrated by the fellow who will speak to us this afternoon. Emma Rothschild is Jeremy and Jane Knowles Professor of History at Harvard University. She's director of the Joint Center for History and Economics, Fellow of Magdalen College, Cambridge, and invited professor at the Centre d'Histoire de Sciences Po, Paris. She's involved in collaborative research projects at the University of Cambridge and at Harvard on exchanges of economic, legal, and political ideas and on visualizing historical networks. She's also an affiliated faculty member at Harvard Law School. Her recent publications include Economic History and Nationalism and A New Economic History of the American Revolution. She's also the author of two books examining the nature of personal life through history, The Inner Life of Empires, an 18th century history, and An Infinite History, the story of a family in France over three centuries. She's perhaps best known to this audience for her work on the history of economic thought as one of the leading figures in the contextual reassessment of Adam Smith's scholarship that's taken place over the last two decades, most prominently with her economic sentiments, Adam Smith, Condorcet, and the Enlightenment which reappraised Adam Smith as an Enlightenment thinker. So I'd like to invite Emma to join us 
via Zoom and talk to us on the topic for the lecture, Good and Bad Markets, Adam Smith, 1723 to 2023. Well, thank you so much for that kind introduction. Adam Smith had a mitigated, muted view of markets, and it's irresistible on the 300th anniversary of his birth and under the twin auspices of the University of Glasgow and F.A. Hayek to revisit the theory and practice of actually existing markets in Smith's time and in ours. Let me say, too, how disappointed I am not to be with you in person in a center of economic, economic knowledge that I so admire and that I had much earlier been hoping to visit to continue many conversations with the late Jim Buchanan. It's also a particular pleasure to be back virtually at least in Glasgow, where I've spent so many of the most exhilarating moments of my life as a historian. Well, Smith's idyll of markets was expressed in its purest form in one of his lectures on jurisprudence in Glasgow, of course, in January 1763, in a description of property in what he called modern times. There are tailors, carpenters, upholsterers, architects, and cooks and others who supply luxuries to the rich, Smith wrote. But their relationship to the person who buys their goods and services is a relationship of equals. The money they, they receive is, quote, equivalent to the time and labor they provide, and they, quote, do not think of themselves in any way indebted to him. A, quote, tradesman to retain your custom may perhaps vote for you in an election, but you need not expect that he will attend you to battle. Now, markets are here open, unprivileged, and almost without sentiment, quoting Smith again. They may reckon it a small favor that they give him the preference in his custom. They are the expression of a universal disposition to, quote, truck, barter, and exchange that is itself the outcome of an even more profound principle or the propensity to conversation and, try, and trying to persuade other people of one's own opinions, quoting Smith again. And in this manner, everyone is practicing oratory on others throughout, through the whole of his life. There is very little in Smith's lectures or in the theory of moral sentiments or indeed in the wealth of nations of a different more or less exactly contemporary idyll of markets, or the idea of a universe of dispersed information about the local circumstances of time and place that is at the same time a vast interconnected system of economic order. This, was, this idea was the inspiration, or one of the inspirations, for Hayek's view of markets, and it was outlined by Smith's friend, A.R.J. Turgot. Now, Turgot's description of markets was an astonishing work of imagination that is simultaneously an elegy to local knowledge and an evocation of worldwide commerce. Every individual, Turgot wrote in 1759, 
is, quote, the only judge of the most advantageous use of his land and his labor. He alone has the local knowledge without which the most enlightened man reasons only blindly. He alone has that experience, which is the more sure because it is limited to a single object. Prices, meanwhile, in Turgot's account, change by imperceptible degrees, and the debate between every buyer and every seller is a sort of tatonnement which makes known to everyone with certainty the true price of everything. The price of labor and the price of commodities approach a, quote, point of equilibrium. They are related to one another by a reciprocal dependence and arrive at equilibrium themselves so long as commerce and competition are entirely free. Well, Hayek's own celebrated elegy to the, quote, knowledge of the peculiar circumstances of time and place, or, quote, of people and local circumstances, the dispersed bits of incomplete and frequently contradictory knowledge which all the separate individuals possess, is strikingly similar to this Enlightenment prospect. So is his view of the price system. The whole acts as one market, not because any of its members survey the whole field, but, but because their limited individual fields of vision sufficiently overlap. Hayek was, however, without any of Turgot's enthusiasm about the asymptotic progress towards equilibrium. Well, it's important to see that Hayek's view of markets here is an idyll, as much as Smith's, of a future political society. This was the prospect for Smith in 1763 of the end of feudalism and of a new society of independent individuals who were, in essential respects, equal to each other. For Hayek, writing in 1945, it was an idyll of the end of the despotism of scientific planning, as imagined in early 20th century socialism, and as Hayek had seen attempted in the militarized economies of European fascists, then Nazi, then Soviet society. It was a prospect of ordinary times and of equal, if slightly condescending, respect for the knowledge and hopes of ordinary individuals. Well, now, Smith himself was more muted in his optimism about the specifically economic consequences of a market society than either Turgot at the time or than Hayek later. He too, in The Wealth of Nations, includes a little elegy to the local. I quote, every individual, it is evident, can in his local situation judge much better than any statesman or lawgiver can do for him. But Smith, like Hayek in the 20th century, was no visionary of market equilibrium. The, common, the comment about the individual and his local situation comes, indeed, in a celebrated passage of the Wealth of Nations, the Invisible Hand passage, that has 
strikingly little to do with market transactions. Now, I'm a little hesitant to talk here about the invisible hand, so because um, my description of Smith's metaphor as a mildly ironic joke almost 30 years ago has um, not been popular in this great center of economic scholarship. I actually started to work on the invisible hand because the late Robert Nozick asked me to be on a panel about it at the American Economic Association in 1993 with Eric Maskin, Oliver Williamson, and others. Well, this was exciting and also a bit terrifying to represent the history or politics tripod of such a great uh, leg of such a great tripod of philosophy, politics, and economics. So I tried to be as much of a, as a historian about it as I could. And this was, recall, recall before there was much, a pos, a pos, a much of a possibility of text searching. My conviction that the metaphorical language that Smith used, at least, was not serious, was based on the now archaic pleasure of reading an immense amount of uh, immense number of minor works and some major works like Macbeth and Ovid's Metamorphoses, with which Smith was familiar and in which the invisible hand is distinctly not a good thing. So a few years later, I returned at length to the metaphor and to the idea, as well as to Hayek and to Karin Vaughan, from here, whose work I so admire in my book, Economic Sentiments. What I see now, after another 20 years, and returning to the passage yet again in thinking about my remarks for today, is the extent to which the famous invisible hand is not actually about markets, or at least the famous passage in which it occurs. So the invisible hand metaphor occurs in the middle of a chapter about restrictions on imports within a section of the wealth of nations that is essentially a sustained denunciation of the specific regulations over some three centuries of British history that constituted what Smith described as the commercial or mercantile system. It is in fact, an iteration of details, the sort of thing that was for Jean-Baptiste Say, Smith's French popularizer, excessively historical and, quoting Say, lacking in interest for anyone other than the English. So Smith does give two specific examples in the Invisible Hand passage. And I should say that I think the passage is entirely convincing as to the shortcomings of the import restrictions he's talking about. But neither example is about markets or prices or economic equilibrium. One is extremely vague, and it must be admitted, disingenuous. It is that individuals, A, prefer to employ capital near to home, provided that the profits are at least as high or, quote, not a great deal less than they would make in investing overseas, and B, that 
the individuals try to make as much money as they can. Both parts of the example are more or less self-evident. The presumption about profits being as high at, a, at home as abroad elides the intense discussions of the 1760s and the 1770s about the very high profits to be made in distant ventures, such as the highly regulated East India Company. So the other example is more interesting, very specific, and distinctly odd. It's about an Amsterdam merchant in the, quote, carrying trade, who ships corn from Königsberg in the Baltic, Königsberg being the hometown of another tricentenarian next year, Immanuel Kant, um, to Lisbon and wine from Lisbon to Königsberg. Now, this figure is not exactly the heroic entrepreneur of the incipient industrial revolution. He's a sort of middleman. But Smith suggests that the, quote, uneasiness the merchant feels about his capital leads him to ship at least part of his goods through Amsterdam, even though he has to pay duties, customs, and, quote, a double charge of loading and unloading. His reason for incurring these costs, transaction costs, we would say, has even less to do with prices and markets. It is that he, quote, can know better the character and situation of the person he trusts. And if he is wrong in his trust, quote, he knows better the laws of the country from which he must seek redress. So you can see that we are venturing here into the economics of uncertainty in Frank Knight's terms and not of risk. The character of the persons with whom one exchanges is an uninsurable risk, and so is one's evaluation of the likelihood of laws being enforced. Smith's evocation of the anxiety of the Amsterdam merchant is subtle, even plausible. And so is his surmise that something like this process can help to explain the circumstances of Amsterdam as an emporium or general market for long-distance commerce. But it is a very odd foundation for the idyll of markets that is supposed to be expressed in the metaphor of the invisible hand. So what can be said before we return to the good and bad markets of our own times about Adam Smith's own view of markets? Well, first, it's clear that Smith was awed by the information that is conveyed in ordinary market exchanges. He was fascinated by something he refers to several times, namely the transmission of news about the demand for black cloth in the event of a public mourning. He objected sharply in the Wealth of Nations to the, quote, prejudices of some political writers against shopkeepers and tradesmen. There are great towns in Smith's description that are places of worldwide intelligence or extensive commerce and correspondence. The, quote, little grocer in a small seaport town is one of the more agreeable figures in the Wealth of Nations helpful to the local community, and a, quote, tolerable judge of 
perhaps 50 or 60 different sorts of goods, their prices, qualities, and the markets where they are to be had cheapest. In what is properly a commercial society, Smith wrote of the widespread use of money, quote, every man thus lives by exchanging or becomes in some measure a merchant. There is even something, I think, in Smith of Frank Knight's great ideal of what seemed to him to be at the time a lost world of markets. This was in his lamentation of 1934 to 1935 about nationalism in relation to economic theory. As Frank note, noted, the, the quote, friendliness and good humor and the sense of a basic human equality had been the characteristic of, quote, commercialism the, while it lasted. This was uh, at a time when Knight believed that what he called the liberal society was had come to an end. Well, there is a different sense, secondly, in, in which Smith was clearly an acerbic critic of the consumption markets of his own society. His denunciation, actually twice in the theory of moral sentiments of contemporaries who cherished, to quote Smith, trinkets of frivolous utility. This was a, a toothpick, for example, or a machine for cutting the nails. I mean, I think this, this language was the echo, as so often in Smith, of the classical authors with whom he was so familiar. The description by Tacitus, for example, of the rise of self-interest in the reign of the Emperor Galba, in which Cuncta Venalia, or everything was for sale. In the corresponding passage in The Wealth of Nations, Smith is even harsher. I quote, for a pair of diamond buckles, perhaps, or for something as frivolous and useless, feudal landlords had, quote, bartered their own whole power and authority. But actually, if you think about this apparent criti criticism of consumption, we have returned indirectly to the ideal of 1763 and the tradesman or the craftsman of all those buckles who is unobliged to follow his landlord into battle. Smith's own consumption, as far as we can judge, seems to have been heavily oriented towards expensive books and also towards the um, paraphernalia of official life, as in the episode of his domestic bonfire of 1778. A week after he was appointed as a commissioner of the customs in Edinburgh, he felt that he had to scrutinize his own clothing to see that it complied with existing regulations. Quoting Smith, a letter of Smith's, I found to my great astonishment that I had scarce a stock, a cravat, a pair of ruffles, or a pocket handkerchief, which was not prohibited to be worn or used in Great Britain. I wished to set an example and burnt them all. Now, um, Smith was undoubtedly attached to what his friend David Hume described as the, quote, 
unbought satisfaction of conversation, society, study, even health, and the common beauties of nature, but above all, the peaceful reflection on one's own conduct. It's sort of intriguing to think of these as highly income-elastic luxury goods. So in the less poetic language of modern economics, this was the consumption of uneconomic or non-market commodities. But Smith's criticism of the frivolity of markets has, I think, something lighthearted about it. It is not a central part of his thought in The Wealth of Nations. So markets are in general oddly marginal to the wealth of nations. And this is my third point about Smith's view of markets. I quote Smith in the editions and corrections that Smith published in 1784 as a slim separate volume. Quote, in all these editions, the present state of things means always the beginning of the present year, 1784. The book as a whole is to a striking extent concerned with the specific circumstances of actually existing markets and regulations, or with the details of markets that once existed. Smith is interested in how economic life works and not with whether markets in general are good or bad, with markets in general in an abstract sense. The Wealth of Nations, as I have been reading and rereading it in thinking about today's meeting, really is a work in political economy concerned throughout with the interaction between economic and political processes at a time, of course, when the distinction between the two was elusive, as it is indeed today. The editions of 1784 begin abstractly and audaciously, quote, wealth, as Mr. Hobbes says, is power. And the entire work is about the relationship between money and power or between markets and states, more than with a hypothetical economy constituted by the concatenation of market exchanges. It is about the problems of markets more than about the ideal. So there were markets that were characterized by what would now be called market power. Merchants and manufacturers, Smith wrote in the Invisible Hand chapter of The Wealth of Nations, are always demanding a monopoly against their countrymen, and they are the people who derive the greatest advantage from it. The years were when Smith was writing The Wealth of Nations were a time of frantic efforts at market manipulation from the local to the almost literally global. There was, for example, an elaborate conspiracy in 1771 to 1773 to, quote, corner the world's supply of the dye stuff alum, led by the chairman of the British East India Company, Sir George Colebrook, involving speculative insurances, investments in the coal needed to fuel alum furnaces, and 46 co-conspirators or correspondents from Archangel to Cadiz. The ensuing financial crisis of the 1770s was itself a subject of fascination to Smith. As David Hume wrote to Smith in June 1772, 
We are here in a very melancholy situation, continual bankruptcies, universal loss of credit, and endless suspicions. It is thought that Sir George Colebrook must soon stop. That means go bankrupt. Then, continuing with the problems of markets, there were the markets that were pulled and pushed by the government regulation that was Smith's great subject. 1723, the year of Smith's birth, was also a key moment in the denouement of the South Sea Company following the bubble of 1720, as Smith himself described half a century later. Now, the company, before it became so innovative in swapping public debt for private equity, held a monopoly over trade with the Spanish colonies in South America, including the lucrative asiento for supplying the colonies with enslaved people from Africa. And the South Sea Company was indeed an extravaganza of public-private partnership or regulation. George I, the British sovereign, was himself the governor of the company at the time of the crash. 1723, the year of Smith's birth, was even the year of issue of one of the odder coins minted by the Royal Mint under the direction of Sir Isaac Newton. The South Sea Company silver shilling, which had a lugubrious profile of George I on one side and the letters SSC, South Sea Company, on the reverse. But there was a further, even more insidious category of markets or quasi-markets in political influence. As Smith wrote of manufacturers with their proposals for new regulations, like an overgrown standing army, they have become formidable to the government and upon many occasions intimidate the legislature. The parliamentary supporters of these proposals, by contrast, were, quote, sure to inquire not only the reputation of understanding trade, but great popularity and influence with an order of men whose numbers and wealth render them of great importance. And it's important that the market for influence was far more sinister than the market for diamond buckles. As Smith's admirer and follower, the economist and philosopher Condorcet, wrote in 1788, quote, instead of buying horses, people will buy hangers-on and places. For expenditures on taste, they will substitute expenditures on intrigue. It became the normal behavior of merchants in Condorcet's description of the ordinary course of events in the regime of prohibition or regulation to seek advantage through political influence. They must, quote, buy the preference of subaltern officials. They, quote, learn to uncover the ruses of these subalterns and must become instructed in the art of seducing them. There are, quote, true merchants exercising a free commerce in Condorcet's account, and there are, quote, men who know how to make a profit from the restrictions imposed by prohibitive laws. A merchant, in Condorcet's description, is continually occupied in calculating, quote, the probability that if he refuses to send, sell at a particular price, a part of his stock will be left unsold. He estimates 
future competition, increases in supply, and reductions in demand. This is the ordinary course of commercial life. But under the empire of regulation, the merchant must also concern himself with quite other risks, with the probability of changes in the law or in, quote, the arbitrary tolerance under which officials, quote, can either close their eyes or enforce the law according to their interest or their caprice. If new or important operations are dependent on government, Condorcet wrote in his Life of Turgot, then markets will be dominated by traders who are, quote, rich enough to have protectors or who know how to ensure the indulgence of the law. Turgot himself, for all his optimism about the prospect of general economic equilibrium and about the local limited knowledge of ordinary individuals, had a similar view towards the end of his administrative career. Turgot, who was one of Smith's most important sources, was far closer than Smith himself to actually existing markets. And the occasion for his pessimism in 1773 was an inquiry into the iron forge industry in the province of which he was the intendant. This was an oligopoly with a close connection to military demand. The inquiry itself was assumed to have the ulterior objective of increasing taxes. There was a related anticipation that government was on the point of imposing new restrictions on iron imports. There was no merchant, Turgot wrote, who did not wish to be the only seller of the commodity he produced and no branch of commerce in which traders did not seek to avoid competition on the basis of sophisms about the interest of the state. The outcome in Turgot's vivid description was, quote, an equilibrium of vexation and injustice among all kinds of industry. So the bad markets in political influence, the bad equilibrium, are the most insidious of all in relation to the good markets of which Smith, Tiago, and Hayek had such high hopes, Condorcet too, indeed. The idyll of local limited knowledge was, in fact, Tiago's and Hayek's more than Smith's, in that Smith was more insistent on self-delusion and misinformation than Turgo was, and more insistent, too, on the propensity of all individuals, and I assume on the basis here, as so often, of introspection, to be interested in large schemes about the nature of the universe. Smith's most compelling argument for universal education about for the children of the poor, after all, was that they were deprived of, quote, subject for thought and speculation. A child who starts to work when he is very young finds that, quote, when he is grown up, he has no ideas with which he can amuse himself. This is a strikingly hedonistic and non-productivist view of the importance of public education. But to the extent that the promise of market society is that it arrives at good outcomes on the basis of local knowledge of time and place, of future demand and future supply, then it's important to see that the promise is vitiated 
by the prospect that the local knowledge in question is of time, place, and future regulation. The idyll of self-interest, in turn, is vitiated by the prospect that individuals seek to further their own interests, which they themselves know best, not by buying and selling, as in Hayek's own evocation of capital and markets by anticipating future tastes or interesting the public in a novelty or expecting technical improvements in the production of wireless sets. These are Hayek's intelligent capitalists. People in a world of politicized markets actually further their own interests by deciding that the best way to do so is to influence the rules of market games. Even the idol with which we started of basic human equality is tarnished in markets for political influence. It is more innocuous for the rich to spend their money on upholstery and diamond buckles than on the services of dependents. This was Smith's overview of the early modern transition from feudalism. It is more innocuous for the rich to spend their money on horses than on influence and hangers-on. This was Condorcet's overview of an eventual late modern transition to the neo-feudalism of political markets. Or, as in Mikhail Kaletsky's famous and apparently not apocryphal apothem about post-World War II Poland, quote, we have successfully abolished capitalism, all we have to do now is to abolish feudalism. So how recognizable, in conclusion, are these good and bad markets of Adam Smith's lifetime in our own troubled times? We are surrounded in 2023 by discourses about the return of the state. Even economic life, to the extent that it is def defined as the concatenation of connected markets, in respect of which the state is an external force, is in retreat. The three vast crises of recent times, the worldwide COVID pandemic, the Russian war on Ukraine, and global climate change, are emergencies in the sense that they are conditions in which the normal rules or laws are of, of economic life are suspended. Large-scale public health emergencies have been seen as occasions for state intervention since the mid-19th century. Wars, like the preparations for war, are exceptions in normal economic understanding of markets or indeed of political influence. Um, or indeed of political influence in markets, events with very long-term and large-scale effects have been seen, at least since Karl Menger, as the appropriate object of national or supranational government intervention. Global markets in goods and services are meanwhile dominated to an increasing extent by a participant, China, in which the delineation of the state and the market is unrecognizably different from an essentially 19th century identification of the economy as an entity into which the state intervenes. There are new oligarchies, especially in relation to resources and energy in Russia and India. 
there is oligopoly power in some of the fastest expanding industries of the commercial societies that are still liberal in Knight's terms. So it is not difficult now to see late modern versions of the bad markets of Smith's time or markets with a high degree of market power, highly um, regulated markets and markets in political influence. I would add to this a fourth kind of bad markets or markets in commodities that are themselves bads. In Smith's time, these were above all markets in the commodity constituted by the persons of the enslaved. But there are late modern or postmodern bads, the weapons that have made possible the many small wars of the past generation, and there are undoubtedly virtual or online bads as well. In relation to market power, it is clearly the case that the largest and most admired companies of our own time have at the moment a high degree of monopoly or oligopoly power, the outcome in a widespread view of their own prodigious success in developing new technologies. To look back to a time of optimism, the late 1990s, that now seems very ancient, the high hopes for what was described by Larry Summers as a, quote, new age of markets, were founded most exuberantly on two industries with distinctive new technologies, information and finance. Both are highly concentrated. Both have had their own bad times since the 1990s. Are these good or bad markets? Is there really a revival of competition policy in the US or in the European Union? Is the rise of disinformation of interest in relation to the old ideal of distributed knowledge or the uses and mass misuses of artificial intelligence? These are, I think, Smithian questions in the sense at least that they are questions in which Smith with his endless curiosity about actually existing markets, would, would have been interested if he were with us today. The second kind of bad markets or highly regulated markets are also familiar. There have been tremendous successes of government intervention in recent years, most notably in relation to the COVID and other vaccines, and to some extent in relation to the sharp reduction in the cost of non-fossil fuel energy the new regulations with, in respect of a green transition for bounties are regulations, as Smith described, and so is the deliberation of new markets. These are harder to evaluate. In relation to the third kind of mad, bad market or the market in political influence, the evaluation is even more complicated. It is clearly the case, for example, that the green electric vehicle economy, like the economy of green infrastructure that is now being constructed in the US, has been the outcome of an elaborate political economy of automobile companies, energy companies, and construction companies that is only now beginning to unfold. It is the outcome two of debates over the location of roads that would have been strikingly familiar to Smith and Tilgo in the expanding economy of infrastructure of mid and late 18th century France. There is a need now, surely, for more political economy 
of the late modern state, and even a new economic history of the state, local, national, and supranational, as itself a large part of the economy. There is a need, too, for, I quote, a new theory of the state within economic thought, to use James Buchanan's expression of almost half a century ago, and an understanding of the shallow state of modern times, which is more realistic than the super Pigovianism of the nudge that has been so much discussed in recent times. But I must end, in Adam Smith's spirit, with a sense of hope. For Smith was, in a secular sense, a man of faith. He was optimistic, essentially, about human nature, about the possibility of understanding, and about the good humor and sense of a basic human equality of ordinary men and women and children. This made him optimistic about markets and also, I think, about the possibility of good government. We need both and we need to think about both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, we miss seeing you here, but glad we got to take all this time. I'd also like to thank Craig, the University of Glasgow and the John Templeton Foundation to helping us bring together this inquiry, contestation and celebration of Smith. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.